I was really hesitant to do this, but I'm so glad I did. I'm so glad I did. Thank you so much to everybody who sent through questions for this Ask Me Anything episode. Before we get into it, I just want to mention a couple of tiny pieces of admin. If you donated to Elizabeth Morgan House around episode 200, just wanted to quickly update you because they have just announced that they are about to start work on a new dedicated space, an Aboriginal women's hub. They sent through an email to their supporters and they say, one of the key philosophies of Elizabeth Morgan House is that Aboriginal women heal Aboriginal women. We know what works for us. A dedicated space is key. Getting this Clark Street refurbishment has been a hard fought battle, but we are here. We did it with your allyship. Many families will have a safe place to connect, rebuild and belong. So that was some very, very good news for this week. Also, if you happen to be a fan of the work of legendary performer and poet Anya Walwitz, there's going to be an all-day symposium run here in Melbourne, February 10th, in the city, a whole bunch of different people coming together to read her work, celebrate her life, and uh, I will be there right at the end. I'll be interviewing one of her lifelong friends, and then afterwards I think we're going to go have a little bit of a celebration as well. So if you're free on Friday, February the 10th, and you can make it into the city, uh, send me an email, poetrysayspod at gmail.com, and I'll send you on some further details. It's not ticketed, we're just figuring out numbers. All right, let's get into it. Thank you again to everyone who sent through questions. Here we go. to answer this first question I don't I don't feel like I have a great answer but I'm gonna give it a crack that was the point of the exercise this first question is from Philip Philip is a new listener very very happy to have you listening Philip we got to read together at Lit Balm the other month and look it is it is hard to pay attention for an entire poetry reading this is not uh a secret we have to keep from ourselves. It's genuinely a difficult thing. And this reading was on Zoom, which made it all the more difficult to focus. But when Philip started reading, I was there. I was paying attention all of a sudden and really interested in what it was that he was doing. And afterwards, I went and looked at some of his poems online and I was just like, wow, this guy, this guy knows how to write a line of poetry. Um, yeah, I'm really happy to have discovered your work, Philip, and I'm really happy that you're listening. But this is a hard question you have sent me here. Philip's question is, can criticism be art? He writes, this probably comes from an insecurity of critics, that what they do is merely derivative. On the other hand, a poem is based on something, e.g. an image, a memory, a photograph, a scene in nature. So what if criticism uses as its inspiration a poem or other piece of literature? And he goes on to say, it's a question I often ask myself. I haven't written any critical prose in a while, but there have been times in my life when I turn to critical prose rather than poems, for instance, for meaning. I do really relate to that last thing that you're saying there, Philip. I think it is true that when criticism's good, 
it can be just as meaningful, just as moving, just as exciting as reading a good poem. I was thinking about that essay that Ethan sent me a couple of weeks ago, Pauline Kael's Art, Trash in the Movies. That thing was fantastic. Uh, I was thinking about Eliot's essays, which obviously have influenced people as much as his poetry has more hard to measure and then I was thinking about probably my favorite writer of all time or she's she's got to be up there in the top three um Joan Didion and I know that she's probably more a journalist than she is a critic but I mean listen to this this is This is how she starts her essay on John Wayne that she wrote in 1965. In the summer of 1943, I was eight, and my father and mother and small brother and I were at Peterson Field in Colorado Springs. A hot wind blew through that summer, blew until it seemed that before August broke, all the dust in Kansas would be in Colorado, would have drifted over the tar paper barracks and the temporary strip, and stopped only when it hit Pike's Peak. There was not much to do a summer like that. There was the day they brought in the first B-29, an event to remember, but scarcely a vacation program. There was an officer's club, but no swimming pool. All the officer's club had of interest was artificial blue rain behind the bar. The rain interested me a good deal, but I could not spend the summer watching it. And so we went, my brother and I, to the movies. God, I love how she does that. She balances a whole paragraph on one word at the end. She does it at the sentence level and she does it at the paragraph level. And I love it. I just love it. And yeah, like I say, obviously, Didion's not primarily, I mean, yeah, calling her a critic doesn't really feel like it fits. But like you say, Philip, I, I have turned to her um, for meaning, yeah, probably probably there have been times when I've gone to a writer like Didion more than I would go to um, my collection of Eileen Miles or my, um, my Japanese poetry anthology or I'm just naming the books that I, that I keep by the bed. Um, but your question is, can criticism be art? I think maybe my answer has to be no. Although if you keep listening to this show, what you'll realize is that I am not a big fan of declarative statements like that. But I was thinking about it and I was like, well, we call something art. We call one thing art and another thing criticism for a reason. Like we have that distinction for a reason. And I think the reason is that they have different goals. Art obviously has a whole range of goals depending on the medium and the artist. And I think maybe the goal of criticism is a little bit narrower. The goal there is to assess something against criteria mapped out by a writer or a thinker. But as I say that, you know, I just, I keep thinking about how beautiful criticism can be, how enlightening it can be. And, you know, I, I love movie reviews almost as much as I love movies. I was totally addicted to Letterboxd in uh, 2020. I watched like 200 films and a huge part of um, 
what made that so fun was that I was writing stupid little one-line reviews and looking at everybody else's. I recently watched the film Showgirls for the first time. Uh, that was a before and after experience, let me tell you. And then I watched a, a documentary about it called You Don't Know Me, which again, like the documentary isn't art. I mean, <laughs> I'm not going to argue that Showgirls is art either, although many people have. Um, yeah, I think it's about them having different goals. The goals of criticism are very specific, whereas the goals of art are so various. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come down on the side of no, but um, look, if I'm wrong, please let me know, Philip. And yeah, it's just, it's just really nice to know you're out there listening. I hope I get to meet you one day. Second question from Anna from Canada. I hope you don't mind me calling you that, Anna. Like, is that really annoying? Just tell me. <laughs> Just tell me if that's really irritating. God, I'd hate to be called Alice from Australia. Ah, <laughs> uh, sorry. Okay, so I answered Anna's question about poems that have stuck with me for a long time, poems that travel well in the last episode. But she had another question, which I was saving up for this because I was super keen to dig into it. She writes, I was reading through Jan Zwicky's book, Lyric Philosophy, when I came across a note by Robert Bly about the Swedish poet Thomas Transtomer. Here it is. So this is Robert Bly's question. At a reading in New York, a listener asked him, that is Transtomer, how his work had affected his poetry, and the tone seemed to imply that his poetry was infinitely more important than his work. Transformer later mentioned how odd it is that so few ask, how has poetry affected your work? And this is Anna writing now. She's, she goes on to say, As I understand it, Transformer worked as a psychologist and translator. Thinking that the journalistic and interpersonal work that you do is not too similar from this, I thought it might be interesting to ask how your poetry, or poetry in general, affects your work, and vice versa. Okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the first, first part first. Um, how has poetry affected my work? So, I guess I should probably talk a little bit about what my work actually is. Um, I've had so many jobs. Oh my god. Just, just like a million <laughs> different jobs. <laughs> I've worked at... I worked at the National Library of Australia for a while, cataloging books. That was very fancy. I worked at the ABC for a while, cataloging video. That was not fancy. I uh, moved to Melbourne. I worked in the digital marketing department of a university, which was like, like in terms of ethics. Oh, no, I've definitely had ethically worse jobs than that, but... um. Yeah, it wasn't like what what was uncomfortable about that was all this money was being pumped into marketing departments at Australian unis, um, but the academics were getting fired, and 
it was terrible because we kept having to have these meetings with academics being like, okay, so we want to present your work well on the website and so tell us what you're doing. And they would just look at us like, what the fuck are you doing here? You know? And I agreed with them. I didn't think that we should have been there either, but um, it paid my mortgage for a while. Um, yeah, so that was that job. And then I worked at not-for-profit, which nearly killed me. And then I went freelance. Um, What I'm trying to say here is that I spend a lot of time working with and thinking about words that are not very artistic or poetical. And, you know, obviously outside of work, I think about poems and poetry and, and, and good writing as much as I possibly can, which is sometimes not at all for weeks at a time. But... Yeah, what I what I found is that caring about words to the degree that I do, and I, I want to say this in a non um, – I don't want to sound like I have got tickets on myself here, but like I'm pretty good at my job <laughs> because, because I think and care about words. And so um, people can send me like a brief – or a colleague can send me uh, a page of writing that's, you know, frankly kind of a mess, and um, I can kind of spin straw into gold in a way that honestly occasionally freaks me out because I'm like, imagine if you could use this and if you could actually apply this to your own writing, Alice. Like, (laughs) it often feels like, uh, I don't know, not a waste, but... Yeah, am I am I using my powers for good or evil? An old boss of mine, who I really loved, said apparently after I left, people were trying to work something out in the office and somebody said, Ah, oh, if only Alice were here, she'd be able to write this. And apparently my boss turned to them and said, Yes, well, Alice was a poet, so uh you know, we, we can't we can't depend on, on that level of skill to to help us anymore we're just gonna have to figure this out ourselves (laughs) Uh, I just yeah that made me so freaking happy that was the same boss who said um Alice honestly this is after I left and I I went around to her house for for um a glass of wine or something and she said Alice honestly um when we were working together what what I saw was um was a woman doing doing a man's work (laughs) She was right. I I did all of his work because I thought that I had to. So in short, Anna, what I'm trying to say is that caring about words has made me really good at my job. Sometimes I feel like that's a bit of a shame that that energy is going towards writing emails and 100-page proposal documents Um when it could be going towards, like, as I'm saying this, I'm staring at um, Joshua Megan's poem, Cold Turkey, which I have stuck to my monitor. And I just think about how long that thing would have taken to write and how much time and energy work takes. So, yeah. Vice versa, how has work affected my poetry? Um, <laughs> I mean, cynically I guess what I would have to say there is it's taken time and energy away from it Uh, but it's 
One thing it has done, I think, is it's given me like this really deep belief that any language can be made poetic. Any language could be taken from a context like like a work meeting and used in a poem. I really, really believe that. That's why I think that poets like Melinda Bufton and Harry Reid um, and Pam Brown and Ken, Bol- Ken Bolton, people who just use real everyday language and find a way to place it in a poem um, in a way that, sh- that I guess, you know, for lack of a better phrase, makes it new. Um, I think that's really fantastic and that's something that I, I try to do as well. I hope that's that's an interesting answer and not just a waffle about my old boss. I think about her sometimes. I think about him too, but, uh, you know. Hi, Alice. Ethan McGuire here, hailing from the deep south of the United States, way down in western Florida on the Gulf of Mexico. I love Poetry Says, and I've been listening religiously ever since I heard about you, a little over a year ago, I think it was, on Sleep Records. My question concerns your sense of how much the average Australian reader reads poetry, and when they do, who are they reading? In the U.S., as you probably know, and as is the case, I suspect, anywhere, or not anywhere, but most places, the average educated reader honestly seems to read very little poetry, and if they do, it's only to eat their vegetables, so to speak. In the past year, I've only encountered in my real life, not online, three people who regularly read poetry and are not actively engaged in writing or trying to write poetry. One is my mother, who has started reading more poetry, mostly Donald Hall and Robert Frost. Oh, a little Emily Dickinson, poets like that. Another is a very outdoorsy friend of mine who reads stuff along the lines of Robert W. Service, Rudyard Kipling, cowboy poetry, uh, and comic poetry like Shel Silverstein. The third this year was a 20-year-old Greek-American girl I recently met who was interested when she saw me reading A.E. Stallings' New Selected. And she told me she absolutely loves poetry and reads it regularly. Her go-tos are E.E. Cummings, her favorite author, she told me, and uh, Robert Frost. Upon reflection, I found these three interesting um, because of similar elements they, they share, especially similar formal elements they share, as well as the fact that uh, none of them are alive. So, yeah, how does my experience of encountering the few average poetry readers um, who aren't writing themselves compare to your view of the average Australian reader? How many regular Australian readers read much poetry? How often do you encounter them? And who are they reading? Are any of those poets people who have written within the last several years? Thank you and keep up the awesome work. Ethan, thank you so much for recording. It's hard to do. Thank you. Um, That really means a lot. And what a beautiful accent you have. I love the way that you say Robert Frost. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I recently found out that Ethan is a fellow Smiths fan and also doesn't mind a bit of Morrissey solo. And look, I'm the same. And it's hard. It's hard. We just got to take it one day at a time. Um, yeah, <laughs> this is a great question. It's hard to answer. Um, so I've been thinking about it and 
I have been drawing blanks for a couple of weeks since you sent this through, Ethan. Um, I have two examples. <laughs> I'm just thinking, like, who is the average Australian reader? So, yeah, not people who I know through the internet or through poetry, like normal people. <laughs> um, what do they read? So I have a friend who was it was just like a real um, real poetry skeptic and really thought that like me being a poet and and caring about poetry was just the weirdest thing she'd ever heard of. Um, I met this friend at that job that I mentioned in the digital marketing department. And yes, one day she she got in touch and she said, Alice, I understand now. I, I, I get why you like poetry. I've discovered this, this poet called Kate Bayer and she's fantastic. I found her on Instagram. And uh, she sent me a couple of examples and then she lent me Kate Bayer's book. And it wasn't for me, but I guess that is a concrete example of an average Australian reader. She's a big reader who did get into poetry as far as Kate Bayer. So that's that's one thing. I have another friend who I met at that not-for-profit not for job that nearly killed me, nearly killed both of us, um, who messages me occasionally with stuff she finds on Instagram. And the other day she sent me a poem. Let me see if I can find it here. Recent images. Adult female friendships are mostly sending memes and helping diagnose the sociopaths in y'all's lives. Um, no, that wasn't it. Oh, here we go. Yeah, it's a poem called You Cooked For Me by Caitlin Conlon. Um, who I think is an Instagram poet as well. Caitlin Conlon is a writer from upstate New York with a loyal audience across social media platforms, most notably Instagram. Yeah, 56,000 followers. Nice one, Caitlin. Um, yeah, so this friend of mine sent me this poem, which she related to. I won't read the whole thing, but it ends... Um, you must understand, I had never been remembered like that before, with purpose, without begging for it. I took what I was offered and ran. Yeah, so that's my other example. I got two friends, big readers, um, both of whom have come to poetry via Instagram and who, as far as I can tell, have, have stopped there. <laughs> it's like, I just have nothing else. <laughs> I have no other examples. Um, and, and I don't feel like I can count the people who are friends with me, who I've told about being a poet, you know, who I've, I've come out to as being a poet and who've said, oh, well, can you, can you send me some poems? Can you talk to me about poetry? I want to understand more of it because like, that just feels like that's more about them knowing me than it is about them going to poetry independently. There are like occasional moments like that that moment at New Year's Eve where that guy was like tell me about Australian poetry or um, when I took that Michael Farrell book to the the local wine bar and the the, the waiter was like oh I, I need some new poetry what are you reading so I think these people are out there 
but but that makes me wonder about this thing I was I guess I was talking about like about six months ago this idea that this sense I have that poetry has this weird glamour around it at the moment and there's this desire to be kind of proximate to it and associated with it but not to go and pick up the latest best Australian poems and see who's in there so guess the long and the short of it is, Ethan, that um, the people around you are reading more poetry, the average readers around you are reading more poetry than the average readers around me are. The population of Australia is currently 25 million, and I think you guys have 330 odd million, so (laughs) um, hopefully that accounts for it. Maybe it's even, I don't know, but it's lovely to hear from you, and I, I love hearing your voice. Thank you. So last night I got a bunch of questions through from silent co-producer Kay. Good questions. Very good questions. First one, who's your interviewee white whale, poet or not, alive or not? And do you know what you'd want to discuss with them? There's a few. There are a few white whales for sure. I mean, the people who are not alive anymore, who I'd love to talk to, are numerous Probably the one I think about most is probably Dorothy Porter. But I think there are ways to get Dorothy's voice on here um, just through talking and thinking about her work and, and talking to people who knew her because she had a big influence on not just other poets but students and um fans of poetry in general so I feel like she's still she's still a presence and I could still find ways to talk with her if that doesn't sound too strange in terms of living poets again there's just so many but the one that comes to mind is Luke Davies who's the guy who wrote the script for Lion and Beautiful Boy He also wrote these two collections, Totem and Interfere on Psalms, and I have a lot of questions for him about how he thinks about those books now, given that they were written ages ago, the impacts they've had on other people, and what it took to write them. And yeah, I I have reached out to him, but I get the sense he's exceptionally busy. I should try again. I should definitely try again. But my, my real actual answer here is the person I most want to interview is basically the podcaster who inspired me to start making a show all those years ago. I have been listening to this guy for over 12 years. He makes a bunch of different shows. His name is Merlin Mann. And um, I know that he has a thing for Robert Lowell particularly the poem Waking in the Blue. I did ask him about it once on Twitter, and that went quite well. I have also met Merlin once, and he was just the most delightful human being, an absolute gentleman. Um, So there's, there's no good reason why I wouldn't ask him, except that if he said no, or if he didn't answer, 
um, both of which are highly likely because he is also extremely busy, I worry that my experience of listening to his shows would change somehow. Like I would feel like I'd ruined it or something like that. Um, it it just feels like he, he's too important. <laughs> and sometimes it does hurt to ask. So, yeah, I'm still tossing that one up, still thinking about it. But I do have a list that I made at the start of the year that was like, you know, very ambitious, like just don't think about people saying no, just put their names on the list and then go ahead and ask them. So hopefully I'll follow through. Question two, what do you want most from your podcast audience and your poetry audience? How are they different? I don't think they are different. I just want um, consistent, uh, unending adoration and praise, essentially. <laughs> no, not really. Um, the first five years of making the show, I was essentially talking to five people. So the fact that I have an audience after all that time is amazing to me and wonderful. And in terms of wanting things from the audience, I don't think I could really ask for much more. If I was going to ask for one thing, it would just be for them to tell me who they would most want me to speak to because it's all very much like my instinct and my taste that dictates who gets interviewed and that seems pretty one-sided. In terms of a poetry audience, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I have one. Uh, yeah, exist <laughs> would be one thing. Um yeah, I I don't know. I, I just think I'm so far away from that at the moment in particular. It's just like I can't even really think about an audience. I, I need to think about like having work that would be worthy of an audience first. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit detached from, from that whole idea at the moment. Uh, question three, what's with the punctuation in your episode titles? You posh or what in it? Most of them aren't even sentences. Notably, that last bit doesn't have a full stop on it. Um, what What the hell? What, what do you mean? There's nothing wrong with the. It's totally normal punctuation. But should it have less punctuation or more? I mean... I I wasn't worried about this, but now I am. So thanks a lot. Question four, what is poetry? This question is redacted. Thank you. Question five, how does Tuesday to Friday next week look for you? Doesn't look good, especially after that um, unkind comment about my punctuation. I, I, think, I think you and me are done. And um, yeah, good riddance. Question from Matt came through last night. It was good to hear from you, Matt. I was having an exceptionally shit day. I really shouldn't have mentioned any of that stuff about having a job for a year. Turns out that was completely, completely not the case. Um, yeah, this is a this is a lesson in like just not saying too too much about what's actually going on in your real life on a podcast because. I don't want to say like you tempt fate because I don't actually believe that. But um, yeah, I just feel really foolish now because a year has turned into a month. So, well, we'll just, we'll see what happens. I'm going to be fine. Anyway, it was good to hear from you. 
Um, Matt Wall writes, Hey Alice, hope you're well. Um, this is technically, it wasn't really an AMA question, this was just a question question, but I'm counting it because this is the week that I'm recording this episode. He says, This thing about Forbes being the Bukowski of Australia really trips me out. I've read a little of him since I heard you say that on an old episode, but being an amateur Bukowski scholar, I don't see it very much. But also, I haven't read a bunch of Forbes. So my question is, have you read a lot of Bukowski? If so, what? And why were you anti-Forbes for a bit, and what made you change your mind? Really good questions. In answer to the first one, have I read a lot of Bukowski? I have read Love is a Dog from Hell. That is the extent of it. Why was I anti-Forbes for a bit? I sort of tried to explain this at the end of that episode on Forbes, but like the reasons are so hazy and 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 not good um, that it's kind of hard to put into words. Essentially, like I do this with with some creators and and I even do this with like albums and movies and stuff like that. I'll I'll preemptively decide without having really looked into it properly that like this is a thing that I don't care about. I don't want to engage with it. Um, something about it turns me off and I'm just not even going to try. I feel this way about the film The Godfather, <laughs> The Godfather 2, which uh, I just am like, no, I'm not going to watch that movie. Um, what's another example? Like even with, with um, creators I really, really love, like I am – obsessed with like in love with the band the mountain goats i think john daniel is i I don't even have any words for how much i love him he is just he is some kind of crazy genius and um yeah i i adore the mountain goats but when they put out a new album for some reason i do this thing where i'm like i'm not gonna listen to it i'm I'm just not going to. And uh, my friends make fun of me about this because they're like, oh, you like it. Like, why are you avoiding it? Um, yeah, I'm not really sure. It's it's some kind of weird block that I have. But with Forbes, I think there was something to do with the fact that he he seemed like such a huge male presence in Australian poetry. And I wanted to somehow resist that. So like a very shaky and ineffective political statement, maybe. But yeah, I should have just read him and realized that he wasn't, he wasn't any kind of threat. Like he's just like a flawed guy, um, imperfect like everyone, but also wrote some of the best poems that I've ever read or probably ever will read. Um, yeah, um, and just sitting with, with that poem for a month and with him for a month and talking to people about him and just seeing him as a whole person is what changed my mind. And I know that you love Bukowski, Matt, and so I don't want to sit here and um, say anything bad about him because, like, similarly, I my impressions of Bukowski are not positive, but I haven't spent enough time with him to really know what he's really like as as a writer. So, yeah, those are my 
answers for you and I hope everything is okay over there. Okay, late entry. Again, not technically an AMA question, but a very good question I got asked this week. Dear friend of mine got in touch to say, how do you feel about good therapists that give out bad inspirational poetry? Because I'm conflicted. What a great question. I followed up with this friend, let's let's call her Beatrice, and got a copy of the poem in question. And Beatrice adds, my new therapist handed this to me at the end of our very first session together. I thought it was going great. She sent through a picture of the poem. Yeah, oh boy, it's, it's just one of those. It's just one of those poems. I'm going to read it. Brace. For a new beginning. In out-of-the-way places of the heart where your thoughts never think to wander, this beginning has been quietly forming, waiting until you were ready to emerge. For a long time it has watched your desire, feeling the emptiness growing inside you, noticing how you willed yourself on, Still unable to leave what you had outgrown, it watched you play with the seduction of safety. And the grey promises that the sameness whispered, heard the waves of turmoil rise and relent, wondered, would you always live like this? Then the delight when your courage kindled, and out you stepped onto new ground, your eyes young again with energy and dream, a path of plenitude opening before you. Though your destination is not clear, you can trust the promise of the opening. Unfurl yourself into the grace of beginning that is at one with your life's desire. Awaken your spirit to adventure. Hold nothing back. Learn to find ease in risk. Soon you will be home in a new rhythm, for your soul senses the world that awaits you. Okay, so... I mean... The important thing to say at the outset is if you found a good therapist, then you must hold on to them for, for dear life. I think even if he gives you one of these poems at the end of every session, if the rest of the session is good, you should still stick with him. But yeah, fuck this. Like, this is this is just the most irritating kind of poem. I just hate it when poets do this. Why do poets write second-person imperative poems when that, that act like they know you and they know what you need and what you're about and they give you all these instructions? And it's just like, man, you don't know me. This is so non-specific, but so, like, weirdly invasive, like the emptiness growing inside you playing with the seduction of safety, grey promises that the sameness whispered. Like, nah, man, you don't, you don't know. You don't know what I've been doing. <laughs> like, leave me alone. It's this category of poems, which is like, it's advice that sounds very lofty and, and wise. But then if you were to like boil this down into one statement... It's like, don't be scared. Yeah, I hate, I hate it when poets use a second person when they should just fucking use the first person. Like, you are talking to yourself. So say, 
My eyes young again with energy and dream, a path of plenitude opening before me. This is you, man, so just own it. Um, God, this makes me mad. I'm also slightly hungover, so that's probably not helping. Yeah. I mean, it's not bad advice. It's just so flat and so, again, non-specific. And it is that, that thing of like, when you are not in a great headspace for whatever reason, and somebody turns to you and says, it's all going to be okay. Like very occasionally, maybe 5% of the time, that is the right thing to say. And, and that's a good thing to hear and it is comforting. But, but we all know that like very often, it's not okay. And having somebody say that to you who also doesn't know that it's going to be okay is like, that's so much worse. I was thinking like, what would I, what would I hand to you as you left our session? I probably, I'd probably have just like a little, um, a little bowl of Gertrude Stein phrases, um, little bits of tender buttons, like written out and chopped up. And I'd, I'd get you to pick like a a random Gertrude Stein phrase as you left. But I also, I was thinking about this, um, what's a poem that's like actually helped me? And I went back to my copy of Adrian Rich's A Wild Patience Has Taken Me This Far. Because there is this poem in here that I actually did find helpful and I do think about um, as kind of good advice, even though it's not advice. I'll just read the first half because it is a little bit long, but you'll definitely get the gist. It's called Integrity. A wild patience has taken me this far. As if I had to bring to shore a boat with a spasmodic outboard motor. Old sweaters, nets, spray mottled books tossed in the prow. Some kind of sun burning my shoulder blades. Splashing the oar locks. Burning through. Your forearms can get scalded licked with pain in a sun blotted like unspoken anger behind a casual mist. The length of daylight this far north in this 49th year of my life is critical. The light is critical of me, of this long-dreamed involuntary landing on the arm of an inland sea. The glitter of the shoal depleting into shadow, I recognise. The stand of pines, violet black really, green in the old postcard. But really I have nothing but myself to go by. Nothing stands in the realm of pure necessity except what my hands can hold. Nothing but myself? Myselves. After so long, this answer, as if I had always known, I see the boat in simply. The motor dying on the pebbles, cicadas taking up the hum, dropped in the silence. Anger and tenderness, myselves. And now I can believe they breathe in me as angels, not polarities. Anger and tenderness, the spider's genius, to spin and weave in the same action from her own body, anywhere, even from a broken web. Yeah, I, I just think about that line, nothing but myself, myselves, anger and tenderness. Like it's all, the, the thing that I take from that poem is like it's all you. The anger is you. The tenderness is you. 
it's all included. But yeah, don't don't fire your therapist yet. And I look forward to whatever he gives you as you walk out next time. Maybe, who knows, maybe he's he's got some other stuff in there that's a little bit less bland. Man, I kind of wish, if you guys wanted to record yourselves with, with questions and, and send me the files and we could make this like a sort of a, um, like a hotline advice show, I would so love that. That would be so fun. Um, Dan Savage used to do that on the Savage Lovecast. He used to be able to ring up a little hotline and be like, hey, Dan, I've got this, this really weird problem. Can you talk about it? And that's how he made the show. Like, we should do that. That'd be so fun. Thanks, Beatrice. Thank you for letting me use your therapy experience for my show. I received an email this morning from Matthew Buckley-Smith, a poet and podcaster who has created the podcast Slee Ricketts, which you you may know uh, in Matthew's words, Slee Ricketts is a guide on the pathways to feel and understand our common journey through poetry. In sharing poems, we take a moment to pause and acknowledge the world's magnitude, how poets illuminate that mystery. And probably important to mention too, uh, Slee Ricketts is supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts. So, Matthew sent me an email, um, the subject line of which was urgent questions with two exclamation marks afterwards. And there were 10 questions in here. And yes, as, as I mentioned, they're all, they're all very serious, so I've saved them for the end here. The best question comes from... Uh, my American girlfriend, Joanna, Joanna being Matthew's wife. Um, Apparently, Joanna wants to know what good fiction I have read lately. What a lovely question. What a lovely, sensible, interesting question. Um, I I just finished Portrait of a Lady by Henry James on New Year's Eve. Oh, goodness me. I had a big old cry at the end there. And... Like, I don't understand the first thing about writing fiction, so I don't really know how he's doing what he's doing. But there's this moment at the start of the book where where we've been introduced to Isabel, but we get to spend this little bit of extra time with Ralph. And even though Ralph kind of comes and goes in and out of the narrative for the rest of the book, we're with him for the whole time because we get that little extra moment, that quiet moment where we know, even though he doesn't know, that he's in love with Isabel and he's going to love her for the rest of her life. That was pretty great. Pretty bloody great. Um, I also read Mrs. Dalloway, finally, for the first time. Turns out, pretty great book. Pretty amazing book. Um, Do I have anything smart to say about it? Not really. Uh, again, like it's a story about two people who love each other from afar for their whole lives. Hmm. <laughs> okay. Yes, it was, it was starting to starting to reveal a little bit too much here. Uh, the the other book that I read that was probably the most enjoyable reading experience I had last year was a book by a guy called Brian Platzer called The Body Politic. That book kept me awake. 
which I didn't appreciate because I find it hard enough to sleep as it is. It is so gossipy and so honest and so goddamn relatable. Brian seems to have an ability to get inside people's heads, which is borderline scary. Uh, yeah, that was that was pretty up there. So there you go, Brian. You're in the same category for me as, as James and Wolf. So are you happy now? Are you happy? <laughs> I wish I could talk to you more often, Brian. Okay, um, from Matthew, from Matthew himself, question number one, a question we batted around a bit via WhatsApp. I was trying to answer this seriously. I don't know if uh, it was coming across, but Matthew wants to know, how should a man be? Ditto a woman if you have time. I'm not going to take very long with this at all. A man should be exactly like Agent Cooper in season one of Twin Peaks. Confident without being overbearing, in touch with his intuition, smart, but also open-minded, and got great boundaries. Pretty much, there, there it is. It's, it's all there. It's all there for anyone to watch. Just be like Agent Cooper. And how should a woman be? A woman should be able to walk home alone at night without feeling scared. Ah, she made it all serious. Question two. According to what principles should one name one's pets? Good question. Important question. Important to get right. And I do have the answer. You have to make sure that it is not embarrassing to say at the vet or to call out at the park if you have a dog or other animal that could run away from you in the park. But it also needs to be as silly as possible. And my neighbor managed this. So so we didn't manage this. We fucked up. We called our cat Queen Mab, which is embarrassing um, at the vet. So sometimes I, I give her a false name because I'm too embarrassed. <laughs> but my neighbor called her Boston Terrier Paul, which is very straightforward and very... Um, like whatever you can, you could say Paul till the cows come home, but he's actually named after Paul Keating, um, which is just ridiculous because he's a Boston Terrier. Um, Paul Keating being Australia's prime minister in the, oh God, is it 96 to 91 to 96 prime minister of Australia, our 24th prime minister. That's who he is. Question three. Fuck, marry, kill, the two guys and the dog from Old Joy. This question is not going to make any sense to anyone because Old Joy is an independent film made by the genius and honestly like the best filmmaker of her generation, Kelly Reichardt. It's a beautiful, beautiful movie that Matthew put me onto and I think it's, I think it might have become one of my favorites. And essentially it's a, it's a story of... Um, two old friends and their dog um, who go camping overnight in the woods and that's pretty much all that happens but in answer to the question marry the dog I think kill the blonde guy and fuck the main guy 
I don't think the blonde guy deserves to die, but I don't want to sleep with him. Um, and the the main guy seems like he hasn't had a good lay in a while, so I'm gonna gonna go with that configuration and worship Kelly Reichardt forever. Question four. This relates to um, this is this is a really deep cut, and possibly all these questions are highly alienating if you don't listen to Slee Ricketts. But we're we're pretty deep into the AMA now, so if you're still with me. Um, I assume you're a bit of a diehard. Question four, what is your, quote, sounds like someone's not ready to join the Brave Girls Club? So an acquaintance said this to Matthew. He was pretty upset by it. We ended up having a debate about whether that was legit or not. Essentially, what Matthew's asking here is how could an acquaintance inadvertently but gravely offend you? Um... Yeah, well, I'd like to think that, you know, this would never happen and I'm a very open-minded and understanding person and blah, 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 but that's not true. Like, I I get offended by shit all the time <laughs> and I did have an example of this that came to mind, which is um, he wasn't, he was probably more than an acquaintance. I mean, he was definitely more than an acquaintance, but um, there's this guy I hung out with for a while uh he was a gay guy I don't like if that matters or not I I don't think it does Um, but maybe it slightly softens this a little he said to me one day that he didn't understand how women could bleed every month but not die and I just couldn't get past it like it just sat with me for months and months and months and I mean, I guess there were other things. Like, I don't think we aligned particularly well politically and stuff like that. But, yeah, just that comment that just, to me, spoke to this sense that, like, women were a different species. That really, I couldn't let it go. Um, Which is more about me than it is about him. I could have just said in the moment, hey, dude, that's fucking weird. (laughs) But I didn't, and yes, that that didn't go well. Question five. Uh, Again, back to another debate we've been having about the terminology that it's okay to use when talking about men and women, gendered insults, gendered terminology. Um, I was trying to argue that maybe it would be okay for a woman to say that she had big dick energy, but then, of course... You know, that, that's a stupid phrase to be using in the first place um, and, and possibly quite insulting. So Matthew asks, what is the female equivalent of BDE and can men have it too? I think that it's just being a queen, isn't it? Men and women can both be queens and that seems like a pretty good... Um, exchange for big dick energy I think that works I'm happy with that answer I have nothing more to add the end question six what is your personal happiness to artistic achievement exchange rate I mean (laughs) it's not good it's not good Um, so far In my life, I feel like artistic achievement has come at a pretty high cost. 
in terms of personal happiness. I am working very, very hard to change that. I do believe it's possible. I think I can have it all. Um, I know people who have achieved a lot artistically who are also happy, who have not had to sacrifice relationships and time and money and sanity and physical health. Like I know that these people are out there. Um, unfortunately, I think the things that I have achieved have probably come at the cost of at least three of those things, if not more, so far. But again, I, I don't think that's, that's like part of the deal. I don't think it needs to be that way. I think those are choices that I made and I, I want to change that. Question seven, what is the most important rule of friendship? Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I have an answer to this as well. Um, the rule is that the minute you realize that you are starting to walk on eggshells around someone else, you need to address that. Otherwise, the friendship is essentially on life support. Um, I kind of worked this out with an old friend of mine, Jonathan, who, like, we've known each other for 20 years. And um, we used to fight really really badly like cats and dogs kind of fighting um but we are still we're still friends even though we have had some some small and big fights and I think the reason is that Jonathan not this is not down to me this is down to him Jonathan doesn't brook dishonesty at at any level if if something's up he's going to call it out and so it just means that that stuff can't fester and you can't end up like sitting in resentment for too long and um yeah I'm very grateful it's like it it's a big thing to have somebody who's not only been been a friend for that long but also um <laughs> just essentially been able to put up with my bullshit from when I was young and and angrier much angrier um and just back to the movie Matthew like I feel like that's the theme of old joy like when they're sitting around the campfire and Kurt says to Mark like it's not like how it used to be you're so far away from me you know they're they're really trashed at this point and Mark is like what are you talking about no it's it's fine it's fine that's, yeah, that kind of, the distance, you, you feel the distance between the characters in that moment and um, the fact that everything has changed and they probably can't get it back to how it used to be and even though they have that beautiful moment at the end of the film, you know, at the end it's just like, okay, see you later, man, and, and you know that they're not going to hang out like they used to because they just can't. All right, question eight. I didn't quite understand this question for a little while, but I, I think I figured it out. Slee Ricketts co-host related identity trivia. So I think each of these corresponds to one of us. English, so that would be Cameron. Explain Marmite. 
I think the question is explain Marmite. Uh, Marmite is a lesser Vegemite. It's Vegemite but worse. Uh, the second one here, Jewish, so that would be Brian. The Holocaust, A, happened, and B, what is wrong with you? <laughs> I don't know what, <laughs> don't know what you're getting at there. I think I'm just going to go with no comment, except that, again, I really wish that I could talk to Brian a bit more often. It sucks out. Our time difference is so hard because um, there's a lot that I would like to hash out with him. Uh, third one, Southern, so that would be you, Matthew. True or false, a good man is easy to find. I thought it was a good man is hard to find. So isn't the answer, a good man is easy to find is false, right? Like, uh, am I missing something? <laughs> Have I got that quote wrong? I'm, I'm just not sure. Uh, and final, final question in this co-host-related identity trivia list, Australian... What's Jermaine Clement like in real life? Jermaine Clement is a New Zealand actor, comedian, musician, and filmmaker. I imagine he's very nice, but he is not Australian. <laughs> Question nine. Would you rather... A. Have nudes leaked online or B. Give a well-attended reading of nothing but first drafts. Yeah, well, look, you think, you think that you've got me with this one, don't you? I actually don't think either of these seem particularly bad. To my knowledge, there are not that many nude photos of me hanging around, but um, there was one party out at Braidwood. My friend's dad owned the bank building out there and we ended up having a party out there one weekend. We all went out to stay and uh, if you've been through Braidwood, it's the National Australia Bank. Um, big brick building. So his dad owned it and we went out to hang out and um, in what was truly an inspired move, Wayne brought body paint and so after a certain amount of alcohol had been consumed, we all started getting into the body paint. And of course, to like effectively use body paint, you have to take your clothes off. And so after some time had passed, most of us were naked. And then of course, we had to go out into the main street in the freezing cold and take a big group photo. So, so, so there are photos from the party and then there is the big group photo of us. Um, on the main street and look I don't know like I was 23 I probably look fine um, if that photo makes it out into the world then sure I mean I don't look anything like that anymore so it's not like it's going to be uh, traceable back to me anyway um, so that can that can go so I'm not worried about that but yeah, giving a well-attended reading of nothing but first drafts. The thing is, like I was sort of saying with Philip's question, like it's it's pretty hard to take in most of what you hear at a poetry reading, as as you've said, Matthew. So I just wouldn't be too worried about reading first drafts. And sometimes a first draft really has like a spark and a an energy that can translate really well to a reading. And yeah, it's just so ephemeral that it doesn't matter. 
So let's do both. Let's, let's do both those things. That, that sounds fine. And the final question from Matthew, who, look, we, we joke, but I mean, you're the best, man. You, you know that. Um, Matthew asks, what is the opening line of your dream obituary? Thought about this for a bit, started feeling a bit sad. <laughs> and then I thought, you know, I think it probably would be nice to have something like, after many years of trial and error, Alice Allen eventually figured out how to love others and be loved. That's a replacement song. You know that.